Hello and welcome to the Landing Theater New Works podcast, where in each episode we learn about a new play with the help of the world's leading expert in that play, the person who wrote it. I'm Brendan Borkshield, literary associate for The Landing, and today I'm talking to you, Janie Karabatsos, about her new play, A Series of Inelastic Collisions, which, of course, was an official selection for The Landing's 2021 New American Voices Playwriting Festival. This play kind of stuns me in its ability to really see the forest through the trees and to tie so many threads together into one undeniably compelling narrative. I think the complexities of politics and family, especially when they're mixed together, can feel maddening and baffling. But this play really boils them down into a set of rules and laws that feel as provable as the laws of physics. And in the end, I felt like I'd been left with this unforgettable reminder of how our relationship to politics derives from our relationship to family, and how the desire for connection as a driving force in human behavior often results instead in collision. And the fact that Eugenie's play is able to elucidate this in a way that is funny, relatable, timely, musical, that feels simultaneously grand and intimate in its scope, leaves me wondering just how the hell she did this. So in this interview, I try to unpack exactly that. We'll talk about experiences Eugenie had that led to the idea for the play, the challenge of writing a character on the other end of the ideological spectrum from you, the complex dynamics of talking to your family about politics. We'll talk about character name schemes, early play development. It's a pretty good old-fashioned nerdy writing process discussion. Uh, Heads up, I don't think we really spoil this play, but we do vaguely allude to some things that happen at the end of it, so be warned. But overall, I think this is a pretty spoiler-free discussion. But if you missed the Landings online reading and you still want to check out the play before you listen to this, it's currently available to download on newplayexchange.org, along with a bunch of Eugenie's other plays. Go read them all. I feel like it's only a matter of time until they all get published or optioned, so go read them for free while you still can. All right, enough from me. Let's hear from Eugenie. I wanted to tell a quick story. When I was researching this play, I found there were other online readings of it. So I I went and found one on YouTube. And I guess I hit the wrong video because what started playing was a really in-depth physics lecture on elastic versus inelastic collisions. (laughs) And for a second, I was a little confused because it was scripted. It was like a dialogue between a professor and a student. And I was like, wow, is this like a prologue that was in an earlier draft? She really went deep into the science. That would be amazing. This first one. (laughs) But I can imagine, first of all, I love that physics concept as like a central metaphor in this. And I can imagine high school Eugenie, or I don't know what age you were when you were first acquainted with this concept, being given this illustration of elastic versus inelastic collisions and going, isn't all of life a series of inelastic collisions? And then just sort of like putting that in your pocket and saying like, one day that'll fit into a story. But is that actually how that went? How did that actually go? Yeah, it, it didn't quite go like that. Though I do think that scientific concepts, especially in physics, are so poetic and metaphorical that that specific one didn't stick with me. But it's definitely like a goat. Physics is kind of a go-to thing that I, I, I'll use in writing occasionally. It's the only science I'll like try to dabble in a little bit. Uh, but I, I think I was inspired mostly by, I knew that I wanted sunny and 
rain to kind of exist in this like other world. And they really just struck me as like planets kind of orbiting each other Mm. that they could never really touch. And so I think that kind of sparked like the science and like physics and of course wanting to juxtapose like science and religion or um, those themes in the play. So that's kind of how I got to physics. And then once I knew I was going to go with physics, I was kind of like just researching some basic, like what would you learn in high school physics class concepts and, you know, trying to, to kind of relearn those things. I'm sure I did, but of course I had forgotten most of them by now. <laughs> so was it at all tricky knowing exactly how much to delve into the science versus how much to, to leave it more general? Yeah, it was in that I I didn't want to get the science wrong, obviously. So I was in touch with a friend who had his PhD in physics and I was kind of just running everything by him, but also wanted to be like, but remember, this is a high school. We're not like, you know, we're not actually physicists here. So I would run these examples and things by this person just to be sure that it held its weight. I wanted to be like enough that anyone could understand the poetry of it, more importantly than the actual science of it. It's a metaphor, so. Yeah, you don't need to know about how kinetic energy is converted to thermal energy. No. Which I only know because of that YouTube video. Right. Um, (laughs) Yeah, and I knew it when I was writing it, and it's all gone now. (laughs) (laughs) Which I will offer, though, having watched that video and then reread the play, I still feel like the metaphor tracks. Instead of kinetic energy being converted to, like, thermal energy, it's more like in the relationship between these characters, like personal energy gets converted into political energy or something like that. Yeah. Like there's still an analog that works. It's yeah, it's a very rich metaphor. Also, I love having a friend who's an expert in the field who you can text with like weirdly specific questions Mm -hmm. about that's really handy. I'm glad you had that. Yeah, definitely. And I, when I was trying to figure out what kind of physics she would she would have done that was especially handy because I would I mean I can kind of grasp the basic concepts of the high school physics but anything beyond that uh, I was gonna need a little help I know that you found some of your inspiration for this play through the experience of phone banking which first of all thank you for phone banking because I think a lot of us have considered phone banking like we've been shown the case for how it it moves the needle in elections but the time commitment the work commitment and then just like the mortifying prospect of cold calling strangers makes most of us not do it. Can you talk a little bit about that experience and and some of the things that it showed you that ended up sparking this play? Yeah. So I was living in Rhode Island at the time during the 2016 election, and I hadn't done any phone banking before, but I knew I wanted to be involved in the campaign is in, in some way. And so I was like, well, I guess I'll try this. I was nervous, obviously, because it is very weird. And it's very frustrating because, you know, uh, most people don't answer the phone, which you mm-hmm. probably understand. Like you don't answer a random person's number a lot of the time. And so I would go to, it was also the Congressman Cicilline's office where he was running as well. So it would be the people phone banking, I was phone banking for Hillary Clinton, and then the congressman's people as well. So I didn't actually realize that, that when you would go do these phone banks, a lot of the time, it would be for multiple Democratic candidates. So I was calling mostly New Hampshire, which is actually where I live now, but I didn't know that was going to be the case at the time. And so it was cool. You would, you would kind of get a script and you would kind of automatically be calling these new people one after the other. And what I quickly learned, other than like most people don't answer their phones, which is kind of what I expected, was that the people who do answer their phones are fascinating. 
um, <laughs> and they have uh, a lot to say. And so you get into these kind of intense conversations with these people that you're never going to speak to again. And there's something like confessional about it, maybe. Uh, yeah. But I knew as I was doing it, I was like, this is wild. Like the things these people are saying to me, not in a bad way, just like in a, wow, that was a lot of information is not what I expected and kind of inspiring. So I knew that I wanted to integrate. I I thought it was so theatrical. And so I knew I wanted to, to eventually write something that involved phone banking because of this intimacy that you can create with these strangers for a very short period of time. Mm -hmm. Um, And it was a great insight into what the voters were actually thinking about, like lawn signs, for example. I never knew that that was going to be something that people had a lot of feelings about, but it came up time and time again that there weren't enough lawn signs in the area. And so that was really interesting and cool to hear about those specifics. I'm thinking now about how empowering it must be to get a call from a phone banker to know you'll never talk to this person again. Right. And consequently, there are things you can say that you don't have to worry about how they're going to come back to haunt you later. Yeah. And so exactly. people can be an open book, especially the kind of person who who answers their phone for an unknown number. Like that's someone exactly. who's looking for, yeah. Yeah, there's like someone who's looking for connection or at least open to it in a way that people who screen their calls are not necessarily. I was looking at your NPX profile and some of the screenplays you'd written, some synopses, and it was hard for me to find like a single common thread that all your plays and screenplays seemed to be about. And uh, I love that, first of all. I love when a writer is that protean, you know, as much as I appreciated any writer who, you know, sticks within one wheelhouse of, you know, magical realism or science plays or whatever. Do you think there is any common thread that links all your plays together? Yeah, I think I think you're right in that like it's certainly plot-wise, content-wise, the things I work on are very different. Sometimes stylistically they're very different too. I'll have more realism things, I'll have more absurd things, but I think that ultimately a lot of my work ends up being about companionship and how it can be an antidote to like trauma and like the challenges of life basically thematically I oftentimes write a lot about female friendships and the power of a a female friendship specifically so there are are themes that that permeate through all of them and I'm I'm definitely interested in structure and I, I write a lot of memory plays this isn't really a memory play it has like this kind of like ghost figure throughout but it, I wouldn't consider it a memory play but a lot of the work I do is more in that line I like playing with time and mm. thinking of time as a non-linear experience so you start writing this play do you have it all mapped out beforehand do you find your way to the next story beat as you go a mix of the two? I did not. I knew I wanted it to be about phone banking. And then I kind of worked my way through, well, if if phone banking is where this person surprisingly finds intimacy, then that should be juxtaposed with the idea that this person at home where they should find intimacy is finding isolation. So I kind of worked it through that lens first. And I originally had the main character, Rain, be younger, be someone like closer in age to me, someone closer to my experience with phone making and quickly learned as I was starting starting to write that, that that was just not working well. Um, And then when I decided to make her older and have this life experience and have this relationship with her family and her son, that that completely changed the weight of the story for me. Do you find that you have to like, if you're writing a character who's rooted in a personal experience, you have to find at least one stark way they contrast from you and that helps you get going? 
I think definitely. And I often, I I've had some of my playwright friends make fun of me because they're always like your go-to move is just to make the character an older woman. And then all of a sudden it works. <laughs> I'm like, yep. I mean, and then they said, just, you know, put a post-it on your desk that just says make her old. <laughs> and I think that that that's part of it for sure. That's making sure that I, I didn't want it to be about my specific experience because it wasn't my experience was really funny and, and entertaining and, and very helpful, like to me personally, but I didn't think it was inherently a dramatic, you know, situation, but I knew I wanted to, to mine the theatricality of the phone bank. You know what my go-to move is? It's either make the character a different gender or make them from a different part of the country with different like regional isms. There you go. Yeah, exactly. So Rain being uh, a little bit older is an example of at least one sort of unexpected turn you found along the way. Were there other things you found along the way that were not in your original vision for this that uh, ended up being, you know, defining aspects of the play? I think music, for sure. And that this artistic, uh, Marisol's art, uh, need to have an artistic expression was definitely something that was coming out as I was working on the play. Same with pretty much all of the other characters, I, other than Rain and Frost, which I knew was going to be the central conflict, the central relationship going in. And then the other characters I, you know, in theater, we're so lucky in that all of the characters can be, have these like arcs and be developed and can be really ensemble-y. And so I knew that I, I wanted to, the best of my ability, give a story arc to all of the main people in the play, all the whole family. And mm -hmm. so um, though I knew that ultimately this was Rain's story and Rain's relationship with Frost was going to be the guiding, you know, the guiding question of the play that I wanted to be sure that these other moments could like shine through or be, be as developed as, as possible. So while I was writing, I was kind of discovering those moments as well. Any particularly big challenges or fears when you think back on the writing process? Yeah, the biggest challenge and the biggest fear is having Frost's character be... Um, unlikable is an annoying word, but just for people not to really understand, to not sympathize with him or to just for have him be kind of just a joke or just like a symbol um, and making sure he was human. And that was really important that I knew like, we need to understand why Rain wants to connect with him and we want to need to be able to root for this relationship. And I think if you have different political views than Frost, it can be hard to, to see him in a humanized light. So I worked really hard on that and wanted it to be a play where you didn't necessarily condone his beliefs, but you under, you know, you understood them, what he was thinking and could still find something in him that you connected to or liked, or you could at least understand why he was important to reign in his family. That's always so tricky. So like perilous when you write a character who, first of all, you know, generally where the theater going audiences, ideological beliefs uh, align. And whenever yeah. you write someone who's on the other end of the ideological spectrum, the, the trickiness of writing a character like that and uh, people wondering, you know, like, it's like on one hand, are they going to be turned off by him? And on the other hand, am I going to end up like giving credence to a political uh, yeah, ideology? Exactly. That's exactly what I was worried about, like that it could go either extreme. And, you know, I think also a part of me that was kind of still 
angry about the election results was like, oh, if I write this character, I'm going to have to understand them. I'm going to have to get <laughs> to know them. And it's like, I'm going to have to do all these things <laughs> that make me a better person. <laughs> and sometimes it's easier just to be like, no, that person sucks. <laughs> yeah, no. And like, we're in this moment culturally where there is some validity to the point of view, like, you know what? Maybe our bandwidth could be better allocated to not, you know, sympathizing with this particular political belief. And I've heard plenty of people, you know, make cases for that that I've been, you know, moved by. So it, it feels especially daunting, I think, right now when not just like tribalism is at a peak, but like people have been a little bit manipulative with empathy to sort of get some toxic ideas into rooms that they've done some harm to, yeah, I guess, if I that makes that sense. It does. Yeah. Yeah. It's a challenging time, especially, I mean, I'm sure we can all relate to having some differences in beliefs with our family members and we still love our family members. And I think that I wanted to kind of just explore how that actually works in real life. Like it's not, you know, we can all say our beliefs, but when it comes down to it, like when we're in the same room with our family members, like we, you know, what are those conversations actually look like? Where do we give? Where do we stand our ground? Where do we, you know, blow up the night? Where do we decide to just mm. like eat the turkey and move on? <laughs> um, so that was kind of what I was thinking about. You don't have to go here. I wasn't planning on going here. We can fully edit this out uh, if it goes somewhere uncomfortable or goes nowhere at all. But I'm thinking about uh, my family experiences with what you were just talking about. And, and have you had any personally? Of course. I'll say yes. <laughs> Not going to name names. <laughs> of course, yeah. But I think that, yeah, this is definitely something uh, can certainly relate to. Not to the same extreme in, as in the play, but I think that generationally, like, it's just been, we're all coming at it with from different perspectives. And I was lucky in that, like, at least the Trump question was pretty clear on my side of the family. <laughs> but there's still some other things as well. Oh, yeah. In my family, there is a conversation I had like five years ago on undocumented immigrants that I end up revisiting. You know, you have like shower moments where you time trip to memories. I revisit it in the shower constantly. I'm constantly rewriting what I said in that conversation so that I was more pithy and more able to to change their mind. Oh, and I know. It's the best when you can just try to rewrite history. And then, <laughs> but in actuality, you just like sit there and or don't do anything or just say something kind of silly and yeah. ineffective. If only I'd had this statistic at reach. Right. <laughs> As though that would actually change anything at all, which it does not. And that's what we learned from phone banking. It's about rallying the base. <laughs> yes. Not actually convincing people to vote for your candidate. Mm. Shifting gears a little bit, I noticed this pattern in the names, the names of characters in your play. I'll take a second to talk about, I think, the two levels of writing character names and making them good. Level one is just names that are going to stick in the audience's memory, which these are great for that. You know, they're on one hand, uh, not too bland that the audience is going to forget them, but not too far from center that the audience is going to have trouble with them or be distracted by them. And then so the great names in that regard. And then in, in the second regard, if you can use the names, you know, in this very utilitarian writer way of communicating another layer of meaning in your play, I think there's definitely something going on here. We have these two characters at the center of the play, Frost and Rain. We have Marisol, which means what? Sun and Sea. Uh, we have a character whose name is Skylar, and it's not spelled S-K-Y, but you make a very specific note in the play. It's, it's got to sound like Skylar, 
Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe even Bailey, the name Bay is in there. So I'm hearing all of these sky water sounding names. Uh, am I weaving a conspiracy theory here or is there something going on here? And, and I know it's uncomfortable to unpack this kind of stuff, but would you mind? No, it's definitely a few, yeah. intentional. The Bailey one I didn't think of, but now I'm like, that is true. But the other ones certainly were intentional. I, uh, I came up with the name rain first and then I was thinking about, oh, well, if rain, that's, you know, her true love opposite would be sun, sunny. And then I was thinking, well, if they both happen to have these like weather names, they might give their, their kid a weather name too. And so that's kind of where it started. And then I liked it because it, I thought it kind of reflected this theme of like science and nature versus religion and society and all of those things. So I thought it kind of looped it looped in well and was, I thought Frost especially was a name that it's, it's one of those things that it's easy to pronounce, but it is a very odd name. And so I imagined like that would be something that he would potentially have an issue with during his life, considering he's always just kind of wanted to fit in and, you know, probably wished his name was like John or something. Oh yeah. Especially now that he's in the social circle that he's in. Exactly. Yeah. They're probably like, who is this weird hippie? Has it come up a lot in times you've shared the play with people so far, the, the this discussion on names that people have been noticing receptive to the, the name scheme? Yeah, it usually does come up, but it's it's usually more of a, I see what you did there kind of a thing. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it, it does tend to. I wanted the Skylar character especially to be, I wanted his name to be like a sign to her. That like this person was going to be special, potentially to be someone that she could connect to, someone that reflected Sunny. And that's part of why I wanted the double casting too. Speaking of things that have come up when people have responded to the play so far, what are you hearing a lot of in in terms of the feedback you're getting, the uh, responses? Is there a particular aspect of the play people seem to hone in on? Um, I think that they... I think a lot of people are like, but wait, what happened to what happens to Sky? Um, so they're invested in the in, in that little relationship as well. But I think the the biggest thing is just the family interactions and dealing with dealing with the stress of having political differences in your family and how those stresses like manifest themselves and still trying to prioritize your love of family over all the other things. I think that that's definitely been the one that people are like, I've had that conversation. Have you gotten validation from people who know their physics have been like, oh, I appreciate that you did that. I I don't have a huge physics fan base that I know of. (laughs) Um, In theater? uh, I I don't quite have that. uh, So I'm not sure. I hope they're out there. (laughs) Is there any aspect of the play that you are curious about people's reaction to that you haven't really heard a lot of like forthcoming feedback about at this point? I would really like to know from someone who has a similar belief system as Frost or who was raised that way or just has more direct experience, how they felt about the portrayal of their relationship and what they got out of the play. Because it's one thing for someone who coming from a perspective like mine to be like, yeah, like he, that seems really, he seems really humanized and they have a, like a, a hopeful, loving relationship and, you know, things look like they're going to be okay for them eventually. But I think that it would be more helpful to hear it from someone or, or, or many people, ideally, obviously, who come at, at it from a different perspective. And I feel like I know what they'd say. I think they'd say you got it, but you still want to hear it from them. 
Yeah, I would like to hear it from them for sure. That would be ideal. Uh, at the risk of making you brag, do you have a favorite part of this play, a couple favorite parts of this play? It doesn't even necessarily have to be like, oh, that's objectively a great part. It could be like, I worked really hard for this part. So, or it came from a raw play. So it means something to me. Yeah, I have, well, I have like two. One is just, I like the scene is the scene that Rain has in the car with Deborah when they're talking about the different silences. I like where that scene fits in the play and that it's kind of a lot of ramping up and up and up. And then we have this very quiet, very still scene. So rhythmically, I like that part of the play. I'm had a hard time figuring out how I wanted the play to end. So I'm fond of ending moments. Mm-hmm. I knew I wanted it to have something to do with phone calls and how, how that would work. And I had a bunch of different endings, um, but I'm happy with the, with the one that I ended up with. Well, now I've heard you a couple times in this conversation talk about I, the rhythm, the pacing, tempo, sort of the, the musicality of the play, which is something that you definitely pick up on reading it. Between the, the primal screams as a, yeah. a thing that enters into this, the, the music, Marcel's song, the pagination, you wouldn't know this if you didn't read the play, but the phone banking scenes are you know, paginated in such a way that there's sort of an, uh, an implied rhythm and pace to them. Is this a play that you were really reading out loud where you were really conscious of sort of the sonic output of the play? Yeah, I think this is the first play that I worked on where I knew how important sound was going to be. And I think partially because I was inspired by something that was totally audio, which was talking on the phone uh, with someone. I knew that I wanted sound to be a big component of this piece. And so I thought about it a lot and it was definitely something that I paid more attention to in this than I had probably in the past. Yeah, the rhythm of everything and just like the the atmosphere of that kind of environment. I didn't want to gloss over my favorite part, which I have a few, but I think the thing that I I really feel like I get out of this through rereading is getting to play this sort of game, this sort of uh, armchair psych game of trying to figure out how this personal relationship correlates to this political belief and just getting deeper and deeper into the the wiring of the characters. And, you know, you realize pretty quickly when they're having their political debates, you know, it's not a debate play. The game of this scene is showing us those connections. And it, I think it's a little bit humbling to watch when you, you turn around and you realize whatever political beliefs you have, whether they seem diametrically opposed to where you came from or not, there is some like clear connection to be drawn from where you came from in those beliefs. And there should be a question here. If I was a good interviewer, I would, <laughs> I would now pivot to a question. No, I, don't know, I, I, I think I get what you're, what you're saying too. Cause I know for me, when I've worked on these scenes with the actors it, on the, on the political argument scenes, it's like, it's not about what they're arguing about, right? Like it's about the history, it's using tactics. So much of it is just, I'm gonna bring up this this hot button issue because I know it pisses you off because you're pissing me off. And all of these things that we do in order to kind of not say the things we actually feel or want to say. And, and politics is one of the many ways that we we can kind of shroud those true core things that we wanna communicate. Which is really important. Like, you don't have to say it, I'll say it, so you don't have to. That's a really important point in in understanding our politics and where they come from and how we got them in the first place and what politics we might have in the future. 
uh, is to understand that point of origin, that connection. So you write a draft of this play, you're submitting it around. Are you the kind of person who is confident in your submissions where you were like, I don't know about this one. Did you have a feeling about this and, and its chances? Well, I'll definitely like write a few drafts to myself and then I'll send it to people that I know and trust and get feedback. And then I'll write more uh, drafts. And then I usually will be like, well, I'll send it to reading opportunities. <laughs> like, I'm not going to be like, here, produce this, like mm. off the bat. So I'll try that first. Of course, when all of this is just when I'm starting to this play to be ready to submit to everything. This is when the pandemic happens and then oh everything's going to be virtual, which is like, fine. It, you know, I was, you know, I've gotten a lot out of my virtual experiences, but it is kind of a weird journey for sure. Cause it was when I thought I was going to be workshopping and doing readings of this play, I anticipated that they would all be in person. Um, and I haven't yet to actually have any experience working on this play in person, which obviously is something that a lot of playwrights are experiencing right now. But it, what's interesting about it is it's kind of, it's just changed the the typical development process, right? Because yeah. it's just it's just a little different, and it's cool. Like I learned a lot. I still learned a lot. It's just it's hard to uh, completely be like I learned this, and now it's going to completely transfer over to the stage in this way, just mm -hmm. because we don't really know. There's still some things you're in the dark about, especially when you're writing anything that has any comedy leanings. You want to yes. know. Yes. Oh, exactly. Yeah. The comedy on Zoom stuff is so hard to just gauge and the timing's always a little off and you don't hear the audience. So yeah, that's like an important pressure release valve for a playwright. If you've written humor into your work to make sure the first time it gets a reading that people are responding to the humor and then usually they do and some pressure gets released. But I wrote something recently where I never didn't get that in-room experience. And so my pressure is still like fully. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And you can't really quite go into other things necessarily until you're like, is this, is this okay? Like, is this work? <laughs> yeah we're a little bit suspended in development until yeah, they exactly. actually, well, it's just like that thing with like, you'd love to have someone who had Frost's experience affirm the play and probably they would, but it's still, you still want to hear it from them directly and you still don't get to right. hear it directly from the audience. This feedback. Yeah, about, exactly. Exactly. That's exactly what it is. We have begun to answer this question already, but do you feel like this play is done? Do you feel like there's a lot more work to do? Are there specific areas you're like, oh, I'm still tuning that up? I think that I can't really judge its doneness. Well, I don't think plays are like ever really done, but in general, I don't think I can judge it properly until like I have actors in a room and we're mm -hmm. like on our feet and, and staging it. I'm very happy with the arcs. That's not to say that I don't think that they're, that I'm not open to fine tuning things or anything like that. But I think that it's at a point where it kind of needs to be with people on their feet uh, before I can make any other huge changes. It always ends up getting decided for us when it's done, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. <laughs> or you just like give up eventually and you're like, it's done. <laughs> right. The, the work of art is never finished, only abandoned. Yeah, exactly. Uh, That's exactly how it feels. It's like, well, I decided never to work on it again. It's complete. <laughs> a lot of times it's like, is it done? Well, somebody decided to make it. So right, exactly. that seems like a sign. Have you ever put the brakes on that? Has ever, anybody ever said, you know what, Eugenie, this is done. And you were like, no, 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 hold up. It's not. I have not in that way, but I should have. Like, I feel like <laughs> I've had moments where I didn't go with instinct, my instincts on that kind of thing. And then was like, not happy with the with the outcome and then 
And then I mean, the thing about theater, which I love and which I always come back to, like, well, I just the next one for the yeah. next version. That gives me freedom. I think if it's like film or something, that's like way more scary because it's just like, this Forever. is going to be the thing. You're not going to like remake this film. So, uh, you know, if you're not fully satisfied, like don't do it. With theater, I can kind of be a little bit like, well, it's just this one, just this one thing. And when you're still a newer playwright, that need to actually get produced, to get out in the world is so strong that it can override the it's not done yet need. Yeah, I think that that's very true. And you need, and especially like, I am sure, I I wonder if you feel the same way, like rehearsal and the collaborating with the other theater artists is by far the best part. Um, And so, and and you can't really improve as a writer unless you have that collaboration. So you kind of like need to do all these things to, to get better. I think I'm a little bit more confident now and or not confident really, but I just have a better knowledge base of like, this needs another draft before I let someone read it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, or like, this is good enough to do, you know, for this type of opportunity. And I know what I want to work on during rehearsal or during development. Are you good at that part of the submission process where they'll often have you say what you want to work on? Are you good at writing? A- I a hate those. So. I don't know. I don't think I'm particularly good at it. I only try to do it like once a year. I just do them all in one day and like, all right, copy paste. <laughs> um, these are the three things. Uh, but I think that now that I know that that's like a part of the development process is applying to these things and answering those questions, I'll have like a running tally of those questions in my head as I'm working on something. So it's a little bit easier now than it used to be. It becomes part of the work. Yeah, exactly. In a perfect world where you get to envision a production of this play, where I don't even want to give it the pressure of being a single production, maybe multiple productions, what does it look like to you? And and feel free to get into anything like where, what venue it goes at, what audience sees it, the creative team who makes it, any of that. I have more of a clear idea about the soundscape than I do about like the set or what type of theater it's in. And I really just want the atmosphere to be like very sensory and not necessarily in like a a jarring way or an off-putting way, but just something that kind of combines sound with like the visuals of theater and really puts you in like the atmosphere of a phone bank when we're there and the atmosphere of this weird like other world moments of sunny and rain when we're in those scenes and just kind of that balance. It's funny because when I think of those scenes between the two of them, I really think about everything very bare and, you know, hints at these other things. But when I, when I think of them at home, I think of more of a, a realistic set. I don't think of it as super minimal. That being said, I'm sure that a designer could do an amazing job with it regardless. But yeah, it's kind of this weird contradiction of like realism and also like nothing on the stage. Do you feel like there's a lot of room for um, interpretation in this? If you saw like two radically different designer interpretations, could they both be right? Yes. I think in this play, that's definitely true. I don't have like a, I don't have a, like a strong sense of the look that I would be at all disappointed or like, no, that's not right. I think that it would be like only things that would make me be like, ah, that's so cool. What a great way to do it. Yeah. Have you ever had a designer convince you that their way is actually the right way to do it? Yeah. I think that especially with the kind of visual design, I like, there are some things that I'm like, I I feel like there's always a couple things I know that I need, (laughs) right? A couple props, a couple images, but I'm not super married to how 
the rest of the set looks. And it is really cool though. I love, I love to let the other artists, I'm not, I'm not a set designer. I'm not a sound designer. I'm not mm-hmm. like definitely not a costume designer. And I know other playwrights have those other abilities. It's not me. So I love designers. I love interacting and just hearing their interpretations and how they think it can come about. And I'm always excited to hear what they, what they have to say because I'm coming at it from like a very basic level. I love it too. I love, I feel like I took on a co-writer for that specific part of the play. I staffed it out to someone who like really knows costumes or really knows lighting right, to make exactly. the writing decisions there. Do you have any pluggables, links, uh, podcasts, websites, projects, upcoming or recent? Sure. Um, well, I have my playwriting website, which is just eugeniecarabasis.com. And then for those theater folks and playwrights, I'm also on the New Play Exchange. Awesome. Thank you so much for giving up the time to do this. This was, this was great. Yeah, thanks for taking the time to chat with me. It was fun. Music for today's episode was composed by Juan Sebastian Cruz. The Landing Theatre New Works podcast is a production of The Landing Theatre Company under artistic director David Rainey. For more information or to make a donation, visit landingtheatre.org. Thanks for listening. See you next time.